But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. He will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. The scripture that we're using is taken from Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 7 and 8. And it's already been read, so let's just take a moment to think about what what we're and why we're using that passage. The passage that I'm using it for is the concept of hope. That's that's what we want to get across. But before we begin this, I want to uh, indicate that as we read the Bible, we're looking at a book that is composed of two different sections, large sections. The Old Testament has 39 books in it, and the New Testament has 27. Now, in the Old Testament, it is divided between books of law, which are the first five books in the New Testament, and then the books of history, that's another 12 books. Then we have books of poetry, that's five, five of those. And then we have books of the major prophets, there are five of the major prophets. Then we have 12 minor prophets. And, and the reason they're called major and minor is probably because of the influence, the impact of each of these prophets have and had upon the people who were listening to them. So Jeremiah is one of those major prophets. And we're looking back to the Old Testament, not because we walk according to the ordinances of the Old Testament, but because we can use the Old Testament as an example of the type of life that we're supposed to live. Now that changed, of course, when Jesus came from the old to the new. Now if you were to talk to someone who has never been under the New Testament, they would not recognize the phraseology or terminology of Old Testament. They don't look at it that way. But we do because we believe in God through Jesus Christ and He introduced us to the New Covenant. Now. In this book of Jeremiah that we're going to look at in just a minute, he says in chapter 31, verse 31 through 34, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to that covenant that I made with them when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. Now he continues on in this, but he says, I'm going to make a new covenant. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, at verse 6, he talks about a New Testament, and an Old Testament. So we're going to use the Old Testament in, in, a, in a way, and there, there are about three ways that you can use the Old Testament. We're going to use the Old Testament in a way that God has designed for us to use it. First of all, we're going to, we're going to recognize that the Scriptures of the Prophets, and Jeremiah was one of them, was, was given in order to teach us about the coming of Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 3 at verse 23 through 26 says, Before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith, which should afterwards be revealed. Mm. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us under Christ that we might be justified by faith. So the Old Testament law was a schoolmaster, but we're no longer under that schoolmaster. So how are we going to use the Old Testament? The second way the Old Testament scriptures are used is to show us examples of how we should live, and some some examples of, of what our attitude and disposition toward God should be. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, at verse 11, the text says, Now all these things happened unto them, talking about Israel in the Old Testament, 
for examples that they are, but they're written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. That's an important phrase, this concept of ends of the world, because when Jesus came to this earth, he came in the ends of the world. He came in a very desperate time of civilization. The third way, of course, the most important way the Old Testament passages are used, scriptures, and especially the prophets, is to demonstrate the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so in Romans chapter 1, and beginning at verse 1, Paul says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of Holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Now what, what he's saying is that the scriptures of the prophets give us the proof that Jesus is the Christ. Because he fulfilled those prophecies. Now, that means that when we take a look back at the, at the Old Testament, and especially when we take a look back at the prophets, we're going to see some examples of what Jesus is going to do. And in addition to that, we're going to see some examples of what we should be doing and how we should be behaving ourselves. But in, in all of this, all we're going to do today is to take a look at this word hope and how it was used. And that's why I selected the text from Jeremiah. Now, I, I want to tell you something about Jeremiah. First of all, he lived during the, during the time of Josiah and, and in, in, down to the time of uh, the end of Josiah's reign, which is uh, about 30 years. And Jeremiah came in the middle of that time. Josiah started when he was eight years old as a king. And about the 16th year, so which, that would make him a young man of his early 20s, mm -hmm. Jeremiah appeared. And he's the one who, who began to, to uh, give instructions to Israel. Before that time, there was another prophet of the major prophets, and his name was Isaiah. Now this text says that Jeremiah spoke of hope. Isaiah also spoke of hope. Now Isaiah lived probably several, genera several generations before Jeremiah, and I'm not really sure of the amount of time, but I would say somewhere between 50 and 70 years before Jeremiah. So Isaiah was here. And Isaiah was here during the time of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And during the period of time that, that Isaiah was here, several things went on. Uzziah was not especially a good king, but he wasn't a tremendously bad king. But then when, when, uh, when the other kings came along, when, when the other kings, Hezekiah came along, he changed things and they had sort of a mm -hmm. revival in, their, in their, uh, their life with God. And when we, want to talk, when we talk about Israel's life with God, we need to express it in this way, that these people were God's chosen people. Israel was. And they had their problems, but they also had their solutions to the problems. The problems they had was that, that they departed from God. They were given instructions of God that uh, they would 
prosper in everything they did. From the book of Deuteronomy chapter 28, whatever they did would work out well for them. If they planted a crop, they didn't have to worry about getting a bumper crop of it. When they, when they raised their cattle, they didn't have to worry about their cattle casting their young and not being able to produce properly. Everything they did, as long as they were walking with God, worked well for them. If an Israelite got into a match with someone who was not an Israelite and they flipped a coin and the Israelite called heads, it would always end up heads. <laughs> there, was never, there was never a doubt in their mind that everything was going to work out well for them. And it did. Now, in the days of Isaiah, things went fairly well. They went so well, as a matter of fact, that, they, that uh, the, the king had set a... Re- restoration of the temple area he he knew that the temple had been torn down and had been had been uh, raised a couple of times and so he restored everything in the temple to its proper state and then he restored the passover feast and then he restored the priests to their particular positions he did this and it was pleasing to god and while this was going on, while, he, while they were trying to serve God and they were doing their best to do this, everything was going well. Everything was working out. Mm-hmm. It was working out so well, their GNP was up. Everything was good for them. Life was good for everybody in Israel. It, basically, it was Judah at this time because ten of the tribes had left and gone north and these two tribes that were left in Jerusalem, in that area, were doing extremely well. Which means that they didn't have to use this word, hope. They didn't need it. And when Isaiah made a statement about it, if you'll look with me in Isaiah chapter 57 at verse 10, he says, you are wearied in the greatness of your way. What he's telling them is, everything is going great for you at this time. So because everything is going great for you at this time, you don't need hope. You don't need any hope. Mm. He said, there is no hope. You had not found the life of your hand, therefore you were not grieved. They weren't unhappy and displeased about anything. Everything was going their way. And that's what Isaiah is telling them. He's, he's, of course, he's criticizing them because that's the attitude they had. But basically, when everything was hunky-dory and going well, they didn't need any hope. And that's what Isaiah is saying. And yet when Jeremiah comes along a little later, he says, Blessed is the man whose hope is in the Lord. Mm-hmm. What happened was that there was a falling off of their allegiance to God. And during the time, in between the time of the last king and Josiah, the time that Josiah came onto the scene, there was a troublesome time with Israel. But Josiah found a copy of the book of the law, he read it, and he initiated what we would call today a revival. So everybody got interested in the things of God again, and everything began to improve in their life. And it, but it didn't last. And Jeremiah knew that it was not going to last. Mm. 
And so he mentioned the fact here that the man has to have hope in God. He was living through, at that point, he was living through a time when crisis was going to develop, a crisis. Life as these people knew it was going to fall apart. They didn't see it coming. Josiah had restored the moral and ethical values of the day. Crops were good. The GNP was up. It was party time on the hill, on the mm -hmm. top of the hill. Life was in full swing. People were beginning to get comfortable before the fall. And yet the clouds of war were gathering on the horizon. There's a fellow by the name of Nebuchadnezzar from the Chaldean nation that was impending upon the destruction of Jerusalem. Times are now becoming desperate. Jeremiah would live to see the city sacked, completely destroyed. He would see the temple plundered. He would see the king carried away in chains and the people of his lineage were carried away as well into chains into Babylon. Now, that's when Jeremiah said, Blessed is the man that trusts in the Lord, whose hope the Lord is. What he's saying is, you need hope. Our situation today is not any different than his. In good times, we don't need hope. We don't even, we don't even talk about it. We don't let it cross our conversation. When we're sailing blissfully alone on fair seas under favorable conditions with the, the good wind at our back, why be concerned about hope? When we're satisfied and content, hope doesn't engage our attention. Hope isn't even in our vocabulary during this time. Un we're undisturbed with troubling thoughts until we get into a crisis. Now, we're now in the middle of a crisis, and we need hope. God has always known that we need hope, and sometimes we forget that. Hope is not a simple and convenient element in our lives. Hope is an absolute necessity for us to live. If we have no hope, then we cannot survive. Without hope, life becomes dismal, it becomes desperate, and it becomes deadly. And the high rate of suicides in this country alone, 129 a day, testifies to the fact that the loss of hope is deadly. So when we talk about hope, we're not talking about something that is ethereal. We're talking about something that is necessary. Something that we need. God knows that we need hope in our lives. Mm -hmm. Hebrews chapter 6 at verse 19 says that hope is the anchor of our soul. It holds us down. Mm -hmm. That's what hope does. And it fortifies us. In Romans chapter 15 at verse 13, we're told that God is the God of hope. Although we may not consciously consider it, there are bases for hope. Let me call your attention to two things that are absolutely necessary, two foundations for hope. 
The first of all, the first one is that we have to have historical evidence in order to, to demonstrate the fact that we have the right to anticipate something good happening in our situation. And the next is we have to have faith in the provider of hope. Two things then. We have to have experience. We have to know that we can get through a situation, that everything will work out okay because we've seen it happen with other people in mm -hmm. other times. And the second is we have to have faith in whoever is going to provide that the solution for our problem. For us as Christians, we know that is our God. But sometimes mm -hmm. people lose hope because they don't have any confidence in the one who's supposed to administer the solution to the problem. Like I said before, our current crisis is a pretty good demonstration of the fact that we need hope. We're hoping for a miracle cure of COVID-19. Mm -hmm. We're hoping for a shortness of the medical supplies to be taken care of. Mm -hmm. We're hoping for the discovery of a cure, a virus cure, and a vaccine. That's what we want. We're hoping that, the, that our financial markets will rebound mm -hmm. and that our 401ks will come back. We're hoping that our family, friends, and even our enemies do not suffer the devastating effects of COVID-19. What I'm saying is, hope is abounding right now. Mm -hmm. And what I'm saying also is, that at this point in our lives, we know what hope is. You might not have realized it or felt it before. People have always had hope in different things. When different individuals are in distress, they know what it feels like to be hopeful. Now we have a whole nation. We have a whole world that is caught up in the enigma of disaster. And they are feeling hope. We're all feeling. So when we talk about it this morning, you know what it is. I know what it is. Because we can feel it and demonstrate it. We don't, have to, we don't have to describe it necessarily, but we know what it is. In our current crisis, of course, we have to look back and say, okay, how can we have hope? So we, we look at the historical evidence. Has anybody else ever gone through this situation before? Mm -hmm. And come out well on the other side? Mm -hmm. And the answer is sure, this has happened. We've had, we've had plagues in this country and worldwide plagues before that have, that have devastated us, but we have rebounded. The Spanish flu of 1918 killed an estimated, and listen to this number, it killed between 25 and 50 million people. Mm -hmm. But we're still here. We're still here. In 1968, some of you lived through this one, the Hong Kong flu killed 100,000 100, people in the United States alone. But here we are. So we have historical evidence that we can get past a crisis. The, the uh, earthquake of 1906 in San Francisco is evidence of this. When people stood in the rubble after the earthquake and looked around at the devastation that they saw, would they have ever thought that San Francisco could rebuild. But it did. Mm -hmm. 
So we know if we were to stand in the rubble of devastation in a community and look at all the ruin around us, we know because others have gone through it and others have passed by it and others have gotten over it, that we know our hope mm -hmm. is valid because we can see that it can happen. So that's the historical evidence. The second is the faith in the provider. Do we believe that there will be an antiviral cure for COVID-19? Do we have any reason to believe that? Well, we have probably the most advanced and sophisticated system of medical research and development that the world has ever, ever known. So we can have confidence in the fact that the provider of our solution to this crisis is capable so we can have hope that we'll get on the other side of this. Now, I, I said all of that, not because I'm an expert on the, the recovery of during a crisis, but because we, we share that common understanding that this, is, this can happen. We will get on the other side. All of us may not get there, but some will. So we have to be content with that. And basically, we have to understand that it's not always in our hands as to how things will work out. Mm -hmm. But if we accept the fact that God takes care of us, that he will take care of us, that he'll, give us, he'll, he'll get us safely on the other side. Our greatest concern, of course, is, is with those that we love and that we're concerned with. But let's shift our focus from this current crisis. I didn't bring it up for that reason. The reason I brought it up was to demonstrate hope and what hope is and what hope can do. I want to shift our, our focus to a, a crisis that's much larger than the one we're facing right now and has been. And it is an infection that involved the entire world and has killed billions of people. Don't laugh. I'm talking about the infection of sin. Now, I know that, that uh, the world takes a look at sin and says, well, that's, it's not that serious. It's really not, not that, that, that wrong. Why, why should we get concerned about being infected by sin, by something we can't see, but we can see it? Cancer is sometimes called the silent killer. And this COVID-19 virus is sometimes called the silent killer. Sin is a killer, but it's certainly not silent. It comes into our lives loud-mouthed and marching egotistically and arrogantly through our community. Sin is a virus. It infects every one of us. And it destroys everything about us. It eats at our hearts. Mm -hmm. it, it tears at the moral fiber of our being. It shatters families. It spoils the future. It destroys confidence that we have in one another. And in every aspect of world culture, it is a contaminating factor. It rots the moral fiber of every nation. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you that sin, as the Bible describes it, is not good in any case. And as a matter of fact, the world has to recognize the evil impact of sin. 
Sin ruins us in so many ways. When we lie, everything the Bible calls sin is detrimental. Everything the Bible calls sin is detrimental. Lying is detrimental. Cheating is detrimental. Stealing is detrimental. Murder is detrimental. Everything that the Bible calls sin is detrimental. It destroys us. It eats us up. It infects us. And it it affects our lives wrongly. Impacts us in a way that's not beneficial at all. And yet the world says, oh well, what's wrong with a little sin? Well, what, what is wrong with a little sin? A little sin will kill us. You say, well, that, that you mean it, it will separate us from God? Yes, it will. But it will also destroy you as an individual. It will eat you alive. Mm-hmm. And until it is taken care of as a canker and as a cancer, if until it is taken care of, it will simply keep tearing you down. It will never improve your life. It will, also, it will always be detrimental to you. This pandemic of sin is so easily dismissed because we selfishly deny that it's doing any harm. We welcome it into our homes and into our families and we encourage it day by day. We encourage bad language. We encourage bad thoughts. We encourage bad deeds. We justify everything we can think of. And if we look at sin and what it's doing to corrupt us, it's, it's as if we, we're, we're blind and deaf, and we are. That's what sin does. It blinds you, and it deafens you, and it hardens your heart. Hardness of your artery. Heart trouble. That's what sin does. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not a... I'm not a uh, uh, let me see if I can think of the word. Sometimes I miss my words like Art does. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm not an extremist, and I, I'm not trying to get overexcited about mm-hmm. sin. I'm a, I'm, I'm a rational, pragma, pragmatic sort of a person. But I do see that sin, in its effects in our lives, is so, so desperately harmful. Now let's think about Jesus. When he came into this world, I want to tell you, when Jesus stepped into this world, he came in as a baby. Can you imagine? The epidemic of sin had so spread over the world that not one individual on this earth was not infected by it. There is none righteous, Paul said, and he quoted from the book of Psalms. There's none righteous, no, not one. Mm -hmm. So he sent his son as a baby into a sin-infected world. Everyone had the disease. Everyone. Mm -hmm. It was was a pandemic, worse than pandemic. But he stepped into this world, to a world that Ephesians chapter 1 at verse 12 says, had no hope Mm -hmm. and was without God. Mm -hmm. He was born in a time of crisis. Jesus was. A crisis. I think about the time when Jesus came to this earth, and I'm thinking, talk about walking into the land of the living dead. That's where Jesus came. God sent His Son to a place where where people were dying 
every day, every hour, every minute of every day of sin because their lives were destroyed. Even when he was a baby, those who had been infected by this disease tried to kill him. Can you imagine the Son of God as an infant under two years old, Mm -hmm. as an infant in a cradle perhaps, Herod sent his minions to kill every child in Bethlehem and over to the coast in Israel, Mm -hmm. under two years old. That's the type of world that Jesus came into. A sin, a world infected by sin. Mm -hmm. There was no such thing then as social distancing. You caught sin without having to touch anybody. You could just hear them. Everybody was infected. Those who were infected and dying of the contagion were contaminating everyone around them. It was spreading unchecked. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Mm -hmm. Jesus came into a sin-infected world that was dying. And it it was on the brink of disaster. But He entered the fray by Himself. Now, he, he made one appearance during his lifetime when he was 12 years old. And he went to talk to the leaders in Israel, in Jerusalem, those who were, should have been the front-line defenders against sin. Those who, who, were, who were the ones who were first responders. But he didn't find any first responders. <laughs> He found people infected by sin that were infecting others but with sin and not doing anything about it. So Jesus, when he was 12 years old, confronted that sort of, that sort of situation. Later on, when he, when he appeared, he appeared almost by himself. You know, nobody else raised the alarm. I started to say a while ago, I'm not an alarmist, but maybe I am. <laughs> maybe I am. John the Baptist was the only one on the frontier, when Jesus came to this earth, that knew how desperately wicked the world was and how bad this virus of sin had gotten. And John, when he was asked, who are you? He said, I am the voice in the wilderness. That's all he was. A voice in the wilderness. Nobody was listening. That's what he was saying. A voice in the wilderness. He was, trying to, he was trying to turn people away from sin. He was trying to help in the pandemic of sin. And he told them if they were baptized, he preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Looking forward to the time that they could get the cure. That's all John was saying. Mm-hmm. And he was, he was pointing toward the time when Jesus would come. When Jesus got here and began talking, talking about sin, he began to demonstrate the fact that, that he had the ability to provide the relief of sin. In Matthew chapter 9, there was a, a group of, of people who came to Jesus to be healed. Now, I believe that all of the illustrations of Jesus healing people in the New Testament were, do, were designed to show us that he can heal our lives. He can heal our souls. So when he healed the person who was deaf, the person who was blind, the person who was hard-hearted, when he healed them, when he, when he restored the limbs, when he, when he touched the leper, he was showing us that he had the ability 
to take care of the other problem that we have, and that's sin. So in, in Matthew chapter 9, they let this fellow down, took the tiles off the roof, and let a fellow down in his bed, and he was lame. And Jesus told him when he got there, he said, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Jesus reached out and did the very thing that this world needed the most. Get rid of the disease. Cure me. Give me the antiviral. Give me the anti-vaccine. And Jesus did. He said, take up your bed and walk. Why? So that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. So he healed the guy so that I could know that he has the ability to take care of my sins. And the same went with everything that he did. When he touched the leper, you know the lepers were ostracized. When they were isolated. They, they, were, they were placed in, in quarantine. They couldn't come into town. If they got anything to eat, somebody had to leave it outside the city somewhere, city limits, in some kind of a dish. And when, the, when they got through feeding them, they probably broke the dish. Because these people were contagious, they thought. And there was no cure. Jesus touched these people. And He healed the lepers to show me that it doesn't make any difference how bad my sin gets. Jesus can heal me. He can take away the disease. Mm -hmm. So that's what He was doing. He had the fiercest foes on earth. But he walked unblinking into the arena where the sick were dying. He went into the sick tents. He went in where the, where the patients were. Without a mask, without a gown, without gloves, and without hand sanitizers. Mm -hmm. Jesus came among the sick, infected by sin, the greatest killer that the world has ever known and still knows, and came in unprotected. And yet he came. And he came fearlessly. He did not consider his own safety. In Gethsemane, when he was praying to his father, because he knew he was going to have to go to the cross, and he knew what, what it was going to take in order to cure the disease. If we had some of the power that Jesus had, of course, we would exercise it and say, okay, uh, we were going to take care of this COVID-19 disease right away. Jesus had the power to take care of the disease of sin. He had that power. And the power was in His blood. Mm -hmm. I've been hearing lately, and I've been thinking about this every time I hear it, that if somebody gets over the disease, maybe we can take some of their blood mm -hmm. and infuse it in someone else, and they will in turn get well. That's exactly what Jesus does. He infuses us with His blood for the remission of sins. Matthew chapter 26 and at verse 28. In Gethsemane, let's think about this just a minute, because as we face everyday problems and everyday difficulties, and we face them with hope, we have to remember that we have a pattern of life in our, in our Savior Jesus Christ. He showed us how to take care of the problem. And he showed us how he should how we should do it as he did. In the in Gethsemane, just before he died, 
He prayed to God. Matthew 26, 39, it's recorded. He said, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Friends, sometimes we pray. I I should say most of the time we pray. And we ask God for specific things. We ask God, that, that, for instance, that we want Him to heal someone that we know. To take care of a problem. And we tell Him how we want it done. And we tell Him when we want it done. When we talk, when we talk about hope in God, sometimes we make the big mistake. The big mistake is we think we know what will happen and how it's going to happen because we're asking God to do it in a certain way. We're saying, Lord, we want this, please. Answer our prayer. And we want it fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. Not today, maybe early tomorrow morning. Mm-hmm. We, want it. we want it to happen. So we set parameters around God. And we say, Here, here's what we want. One of the things we fail to realize in hope is that hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man sees, what does he yet hope for? So if I know how God is going to solve my problem, that's not hope. My hope is, I hope God will take care of it, and I'm going to put it in His hands as to what He's going to do. If I tell Him how I want it, that's a mistake. Jesus was going to the cross. He, he, was, he was in a crisis. The world is in a crisis in Him. And in His prayer, He said, If it be possible, I don't want to do this. If it be possible. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. So, when I pray for someone, and when you pray for someone, it should be, Lord, we would like you to do this, if it be possible. Hmm. But whatever, however, please answer our prayer in your way, what you want done, and not what I want done. Okay. Jesus had the antiviral for sin. His blood would be the vaccine against the deadliest disease in existence. He was scorned and he was mocked. Who does he think he is? Why does he think he can do this? By those who should have been joining with him to face the enemy of mankind. But as he stepped up to face his enemies and confront the cruelty of the cross, he put his hope in the Father. Jesus, did you know that Jesus had hope just like we do? He said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. In Luke chapter 23, verse 46. His hope was in his Father. His hope was when he went into the grave that he would come out. And so there's a text quoted in Psalms chapter 16, verse 8 through 11, that is attributed to Jesus by Peter in Acts chapter 2, verse 25 through 38. And that text says, Moreover, my flesh shall rest in hope. Jesus is telling His Father, My flesh will rest in hope. Because you will not leave my soul in hell, neither will you suffer your Holy One to see corruption. Jesus put His hope in His Father when He went into the grave. He has saved the world from extinction and the inhabitants from the blight of sin. He is our hope for a cure and He is our daily vaccine. 
the spread of sin has not ceased since the time of Jesus. But he brought, he brought the cure. He brought the cure. All we have to do is get that cure introduced into the patient. In Colossians 1.27, the text says, It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And, and in 1 Timothy 1 at verse 1, it says, The Lord Jesus Christ, who is our hope. So, when we're facing the problem of sin, and we're going to face it all the time, it is, it is contagious. It is so contagious that when in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 6, when God was talking to the children of Israel, He told them that this problem of sin was going to be so widespread that I will visit the iniquity of your fathers to the third and fourth generation. Which means that the influence that the fathers will have when they commit iniquity will pass down to their sons, their grandsons, and their great-grandsons. You can't imagine, when you sin, how widespread that disease is going to be, how far it's going to reach. It's going to reach your children, and it's going to reach your children's children, and it's going to reach your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren. That's how far the influence of iniquity is. That's what sin does. It will kill us. And it is killing us. It is destroying us. Why do, why do families break up? Sin. Why are careers ruined? By cheating or by embezzlement. Sin. Why are people disappointed in relationships? Why, do people, why are people hurt deep down in their heart because of failed relationships? Sin. Why... Why do people molest and, and commit violence to children? Mm. Sin. Mm. We are living in an area, in a life, in a world that is full of the contagion of sin. Mm -hmm. And there's only one cure for it. And that cure is the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you stand in the front lines of this fight against this enemy. You are the first responders. You are the ones that have to step up and preach and teach the gospel of Jesus Christ because if people never hear it, they'll never get well. Never get well. Paul told Timothy, preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season. Reprove, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Mm -hmm. If you're concerned about sin, if you're concerned about the gay parades that strip people naked in the streets in this country, if you're concerned about the bloody hands that reach inside the womb of the mother and tear out the infant and take the life out of it, if you're concerned about all the lying going on, if you're concerned about all the pillaging and plundering going on in this world, then you need to step up and bring the vaccine, bring the cure to the sick. Preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is the cure. And until the world hears the gospel, the world is going to get sicker and sicker and sicker. 
Thank you very much for your attention this morning.